0: Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today we are talking to Alan Clegg, who has a wealth of experience in all aspects of metals and minerals value chain, from exploration to operations and through to mine closure, um, including financing of projects, project management and project construction and execution. As a competent person for the independent engineers and technical reporting and presents regularly at conferences, um, he's here today to talk about key elements of an energy and environmental-focused economy economic future.
1: So that's uh, that's welcome, Alan, to the podcast. How you doing, Alan? I'm great, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's Great to be yeah. here. To chat to you today.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate uh, appreciate your time as well. Um, we we had some technical issues just before, so we're just actually recording this. Via audio, not visual, as well. But uh, as long as the content's good, I'm sure our audience will um, wouldn't mind uh, listening to what what you have to say around that subject. So, first of all, I wanted to even just give us a um, a background about yourself. Obviously, you've been in the industry for for a while, so I wanted to can just give our audience, for those that don't know you, a little bit about your career and your background, um, so they uh, so they know who, a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, well, I think you—you know—you did cover some of my experience. Uh, look, my 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 career started uh, uh, in the basically in the mid '70s, um, in the uh, coal fields of uh, uh, of North Yorkshire and the northeast of England, within the British National Coal Board. Uh, I studied mining engineering at Newcastle University um, in the UK, and then um, after that moved to South Africa uh, in, in 1977, um, and from there on, I was pretty much based in Africa uh, for the balance of, of my life, but I've spent more than half that time in the last 44 years in other parts of the world, um, designing, building, operating uh, um, various uh, mining and energy projects uh, across the value chain, as you mentioned, um, and in more than 40 African countries and more than 160 countries globally. So I pretty much gained experience in all the, the jurisdictions, major mining jurisdictions and many of the minor ones across the world. So uh, was able to uh, yeah uh, uh, put together a real picture of the what's happening um, in the mining and minerals and energy sector on a global basis. And and having been experienced in it over four decades, I've also lived through the the massively cyclical nature of the industry, the ups and downs, when when one period the commodities are booming and capital is flowing, and the next period there's no capital and the industry's crashing. Uh, It's been a very, very interesting career indeed. And I'm still still doing it and still enjoying it and uh, and blessed to be able to still do it. So, yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's good to hear. I wonder if you just give us a say, a quick snapshot of um the topic that I mentioned, which is key elements of an energy and environmental focused economic future. Just want to give a snapshot, and then I've got some questions to uh, ask you around
1: around that particular subject. Okay. well, really, uh, you know, the, the, the title really encompasses, you know, where we're actually at in the world today. I mean, we, we've got this post-COVID-19 recovery period and, and a number of converging pressure elements. You know, we've got the economy at large with a massive focus on GDP recovery by the governments of the world. And, and yet we've also got a demand for clean, cheap energy uh, propagated by... Uh, the illusion that renewable energy is going to be a light switch and is going to be the ultimate solution. Uh, and we're going to be able to instantaneously deal with climate change that's taken centuries to get to where it is. Uh, so there's a lot of issues out there. And and along with those economic issues, you know, we're dealing with massive unemployment, global depression, you know, needs for social security and support for the unemployed. Uh, um, We've got uh, an industry that on the one hand uh, is, is is expanding and needs to expand, but we've got a massive shortage of skills out there, despite you know, all these people that are out there are unemployed. Unfortunately, many of them really are not available to our industry. Then you've got the old issues around uh, um, safety and security, you know, the reset of the medical system uh, and still the COVID restrictions that are operating uh, within business. Um, and that's, that's really affecting also the supply chain. And we've got this huge structural adjustment that's happening you know, with fiscal stimulation packages that are really not getting to the grassroots and are really not getting into the industry where we need them. And on top of that, you've got this huge reset to the financial system that we're having to deal with. You've got the central banks implementing modern monetary theory uh, and the central banks printing all this money, and then on the other hand, you've also got a, a, a massive amount of of liquidity and capital out there that's not being deployed purely and simply because of this uh, this huge swing towards environmental and social governance. And so the funders are saying, well, you know, we want all this cheap energy, we need all these commodities but we're not going to fund it because we're not happy with the environmental aspects or the social aspects and the governance around that. And these things are, are counterproductive and counterintuitive. Um, and th- there's a, a real significant search to find a balance right now. Uh, and, th- and that's going to be a problem for some time to come is to find that balance between really common sense. What can we implement realistically now? How can we be able to uh, implement something that's going to give a realistic impact and a mitigation effect on um, the climate change issues of the day. That the prevalent narrative, much of which, of course, is misinformed, um, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's 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 quite hectic, uh, and you can't divorce the environment and the energy and economics today. They're all indelibly uh, intertwined together. So, it's quite a balancing act for. For operators and investors alike in the energy and the mining and mineral space today. Um, obviously, we've uh, we're sort of, I suppose,
0: coming out of COVID-19. Um, but in the obviously post-COVID-19 world, what do you see as the key elements within the
1: economic future? I think there's there, there, there's a number of them. I think first we have to look at uh, at the geopolitical scenario. Because uh, that ultimately uh, informs and restricts just about everything. And we have this polarizing effect at the moment of the world, uh, West and East. Uh, I mean, you've got the global leaders on the West. You've got the Biden and the Boris Johnson and the EU. And on the other side, you've got uh, uh, President Xi and you've got Putin um, and others. And they're all at odds with one another. And for various reasons. Um, And as a result of that, we're getting quite a lot of cultural nationalism coming to the front again. uh, And that's affecting investment. Um, And then there's a a, a really a striving, I think, for less reliance on China, particularly in in, in the West. And you've got this, this specter of increasing social unrest out there. There's a focus on on inequality. So on a macro sense, you're seeing a lot of that. If we talk about Africa, um, Africa is a a continent that's pretty much in the center of of West and East, and they're all vying for position to acquire or, or, or get hold of the resources that Africa is, because Africa is still one of the last major uh, uh, you can say well it's the major area that is relatively unexplored and undeveloped and still has some massive potential but of course the capital needs to be deployed so you have went through years and years of the Chinese who were literally uh, holding African governments to ransom by giving them uh, cheap loans or, or building roads or bridges or schools or, or uh, even sports stadia and then when the government couldn't pay back saying okay well, we want all your gold reserves. Many of the African countries, in particular the Christian dominant jurisdictions, so we're talking Tanzania Zimbabwe, Zambia, Ghana, DRC, Kenya and to to a degree South Africa, uh, a lot of the resources have already been mortgaged to the Chinese um, and indeed some others, uh, also to to even even Russia, for example. Um, And then you've got the rising resource nationalism of those governments, uh, on the back of that now, and, and holding major Western investors and companies uh, uh, to ransom. Uh, case in point was Barrick in Tanzania, uh, which was a massive problem for them, and, and until fortunately uh, Mark Bristow managed to come in and ultimately did a deal and sorted it out. But but that is that spectrum of more empowerment, more equity, more taxation, more royalties. All these things are are impacting. And then you've got the regional conflicts uh, around the world. I mean, in in the Middle East and Africa, you've got the Saudi-Yemen issue, which we saw even this weekend, of course, with an attack on the Saudi Aramco oil thing But at the Grand Prix. You've still got Iran and Afghanistan uh, collectively against Iraq. You've got the South China Sea conflict, China and Hong Kong versus Taiwan and Japan the Korean Peninsula issue, and of course, as was predicted, as I predicted a year ago, we've now got the you know the Russia-Ukraine issue. So all these things, if you bring these together, uh, they make uh, uh, things quite difficult <laughs> to navigate for, for for investors in the mining and energy space, and in fact, to ultimately divine where is our future going.
0: Yeah, certainly. Seeing, obviously, there's a lot of things going on, which, which you've just mentioned. Um, but what are the strategic indicators
1: that we should be uh, recognizing? Well, uh, the key one, you know, is is really an energy focus because uh, energy is everything. Without energy today, literally nothing happens. We can't mine without energy. And if we don't mine, we don't have commodities. And if we don't have commodities, we can't produce the goods that we need um and and the whole point of of looking at energy is to determine the energy return on the energy invested you know what is the return for that and looking specifically at i mean oil uh yes there's the prevalent narrative about oil and gas and hydrocarbons in general you know we we have to stop using them but i mean it's a pipe dream i mean it really is not going to happen you know uh Oil supplies are out there. There is no shortage in the market. In fact, uh, there's various analysts still say there's a glut. The United States has continued to growing their production. Um, inflation is driving consumption lower. The average consumer, really, if you look at the, the fuel price that they have to pay, they're no longer making those those holiday trips, those quick weekend trips. If they have to spend two or three hundred dollars on fuel, it's really expensive. Uh, and and where is oil going? I mean, if you look at the analysts out there, you've got on the one hand some saying, oh, it's going to go to two hundred dollars a barrel uh, quite soon, and you've others that say, no, 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 it's going to come down and it's going to sit around five dollars a barrel. You know, who is for sure the macroeconomic and the geopolitics that's hanging as going to is going to drive that? And as it sits today, it walked around hundred and I a little bit down. Uh, as a major input element to everything that uh, happens um, in the world economically. If you look at the energy mix, of course, that's a very important one. I mean, clearly, uh, uh, oil aside, if we look at now mined uh, commodities, energy commodities like coal, thermal coal, etc., I mean, that's going to remain dominant for baseload power supply, probably in the range of, 40% Forty percent to sixty percent. There's no doubt about that. We don't have a choice. The pendulum has swung back now. The Germans are looking at reopening the collieries. The British are. The Americans are, are continuing to to expand coal mining. Australia said clearly, we're going to mine coal. Um, and then you've got, you know, the nuclear future, which, as we all know, is still the cleanest form of energy. And, you know, I'm a strong believer that the nuclear future is secure and ultimately, you know, uranium will boom. um, And as as a power generator, it's going to continue to increase probably another, uh, uh, probably become 20% of the energy mix within the next 20 years, for sure. Liquid natural gas, that's another one. uh, Various of the governments and authorities have, have now given that a green label how they managed to do that i don't know but they just suddenly decided that liquid natural gas is green really because they don't have a choice to use it and that's the way they can uh, excuse themselves for using it i think lng uses are going to be pretty stable probably to around 20% of the energy mix globally and then look at the renewable question i mean renewables are still the fastest growing of course but it's still only 6 to 7% of the total, total energy market worldwide so even if it grows at 10%, 15%, 20%, 30%, 40% per year. It's still not going to be you know, meaningful in terms of the overall energy mix. And then the restrictive elements are twofold. One is the metals and mineral commodities that one needs to go into building those renewable facilities. It's just not available. There's just not enough metal. There's just not enough of the minerals out there. And sooner or later, someone is going to wake up to the fact that You know, these technologies, these renewable technologies, if you look at the full carbon balance sheet end to end across the value chain, they're not as green as everybody likes to make out. So I think that there's a lot of discussion, a lot of questions still going to come on this. And one just has to be awake and watch and see and continually come back and and, and assess your assumptions in regard to what's happening in in your business in front of you because it's changing all the time yeah Um, you're based in uh, Africa
0: Um, how do you see the energy and environmental uh, economic requirements affecting affecting Africa and I suppose uh, whether you count Africa as a whole or uh, subdivide it Um, yeah just wonder what your thoughts
1: are on that Um, Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, I think primarily because of the geopolitical conflicts and the embedded investment already made by China for one, uh, India for another, Um, even even the Turkish, even even from Turkey. I mean, uh, Turkey has been a heavy investor in the Islamic countries, so the ones that share their common religion uh, As the Islamic religion, uh, they've been a heavy investor in many of the Islamic, predominantly Islamic countries in Africa. So I I see from those parties continued capital deployment to capture, let's call it for want of better terminology, green related resources and metals. So they're going to target nickel, copper, cobalt, uh, uh, zinc, graphite, lithium. They're going to be targeting those as far as possible, and they're going to deploy, continue to deploy big amounts of capital into Africa. And of course, there, there is competing capital from the West uh, coming out of the uh, London listed market, coming from the Canadians, even the Australians. But they they really are struggling to compete with these other elements that I mentioned because of the ESG issues that and the the let's call them ethical issues that the funders have within the Western funding institutions. And that is holding everything back. They're too slow to react, and therefore the others are getting in quickly, who don't constrain themselves around all these, the prevalent narrative and the ESG issues so much, and therefore they're getting a a hold of of these assets, these, these assets in the ground. So I I really see that happening, but I also see, you know, a really growth in contrarian investment, you know, in mining, energy and construction for green manufacturing. So battery factories for electric vehicles, for solar panels, actually manufacturing them on the continent in Africa, in the front ranked economies like South Africa, where that's already starting, uh, in Nigeria, uh, in Namibia. Um, in Botswana. So so that's certainly uh, uh, happening for sure. And I call it contrarian investment because, I mean, if you look at investment in the mining sector overall on the world stage, I mean, relatively speaking, the amount of investment that goes into mining compared to other equities and other industries is relatively small. It's about 10% of all capital that's only going into raw materials, which is a little bit crazy to understand when you think that everything around us, everything we use, Everything we wear, everything we eat basically comes from mining and minerals. The other thing that I'll see in Africa is is that there's going to be increased investment at home. In other words, the the institutions that are local, the the governments themselves, uh, they're they're continuing to focus and put more investment into the value chain elements that make up the green economy, uh, specifically in technologies like uh, hydrogen, Uh, Electrolyzers, uh, uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers, um, the the production of of all types of catalysts. So all those types of things. And certainly uh, I see more and more increase in exploration activity on the African continent and particularly with the application of new technology. So uh, using satellite-based tomography, artificial intelligence, All these aspects are being brought to the thought, and and it's coming up with with new discoveries, and not only new discoveries, very importantly, that we're seeing here in Africa is is brownfield. So uh, uh, mines that were, for all intents and purposes, closed, had a closure certificate and were mined out, have been gone back to uh, and have restarted, and all of a sudden, there's now this massive resource there that's somewhat bigger than it ever was when the mine was working in the 50s and 60s and 70s. A uh, case in point would be uh, Orion Minerals in the Northern Cape with their O'Keefe copper operation. Um, I mean, their they're declared resources and reserves now is bigger than it ever was when goldfields were mining it in in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So that type of thing is also happening. And then in precious metals, uh, certainly that's that's a big focus. You know, gold, platinum, silver, and even palladium as an investment metal, given the financial reset that I was mentioning. I mean, uh, a real store of value. I mean, gold obviously is seen as real money. Uh, silver is coming back. Uh, it all used to be. I mean, silver was the first money even before gold, but that's starting to come back. And, and then even platinum and potentially palladium too. But also platinum and palladium are repositioning themselves very strongly as energy metals, uh, and of course the uh, platinum, in particular, is used a lot in the hydrogen space for hydrogen catalyzers, electrolyzers, and so on. So uh, that's finding a space, and then investment in what they call ethical copper, and obviously that's uh, uh, copper, ethical copper, nickel, and cobalt that is mined for the purpose of producing battery precursors for electric vehicles and so on, uh, and ethical because you know uh, people are, don't want it to be produced with, uh, with child labour and so on, which has been a major accusation, accusation at many countries in Africa, not only the DRC but others too, um, which is somewhat uh, uh, disingenuous because the people don't really understand. I mean, many of these countries, they, while there are – what we perceive as children working and, and mining in mines, it's literally because they don't have any opportunity to make money for their families. So it's not really, it's not forced labour, but you know the West has a, a, a pretty skewed understanding of what that means. But right or wrong, the narrative is ethical metal production. Um, and certainly the miners uh, in, in Africa are giving attention to that, especially the majors and a lot of the mid-caps, and now the juniors are also having to do the same. Other important metals, of course, in Africa is vanadium and manganese. Um, I mean, they are very much focused on uh, on the battery production. Vanadium, particularly for the Redox flow-through battery, which is really for grid-scale, utility-scale batteries. Uh, those are being deployed now, for instance, in South Africa. I mean, the, the local utility, ESCOM, they've got quite a large uh, Redox flow-through battery experimental installation now. Uh, on a utility scale. So those things are coming to the vote. And then, of course, the big one from an energy perspective is thermal coal uh, for energy generation. I mean, we have huge thermal coal resources in Southern Africa still, uh, and our base load power here is still 85% produced from thermal coal-fired power plants. Um, and that's going to continue for the foreseeable future. Uh, And anyone who thinks otherwise, you know, they're frankly smoking their socks because there's no other way. We just don't have enough. We already have a 50 gigawatt energy and power deficit in Southern Africa. If we're going to continue to meet the growth targets that the powers that be uh, are demanding and are quoting, From an economic growth perspective and employment, et cetera, economic value generation, we we need power. We need energy. And the only way it's going to come is from thermal coal. So I I continue to see, and we look at coal prices now, which are plus $300 a ton. um, Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden we have a coal shortage and everybody's running here. We've got the Indians running around in South Africa at the moment. Even the Chinese are here. Uh, uh, They're all looking for coal. Uh, because we have the coal here, but because of, of previous pricing, a lot of the coal mines you know, cut back, and because of the narrative and the lack of funding, they cut back. Now there's the demand again. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting dynamic at the moment. And the final one in Africa, which is going to be, I believe, uh, uh, very exciting uh, from an investment perspective, but also uh, very exciting from an economic development point of view, is the development of your uranium mining operations. Uh, Uranium endowment in Africa is huge, got some incredibly great projects in this part of the world. And one of the things that many people don't know, or even have forgotten, that until 1985, South Africa was still the largest uranium producer in the world. Uh, Of course, uranium was produced... As a byproduct, all the mines in those when I started in the mid-70s in the gold industry were were all gold and uranium mines. It was Goldfields was a gold and uranium company. Anglo-American was Anglo-American gold and uranium company. So uh, every gold mine had a gold plant and it had a uranium plant um, and was producing uh, uh, yellow cake. Of course, when the price uh, collapsed uh, in the late 80s and through the 90s, those operations were mothballed or cut out. But, I mean, we've still got, uh, um, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of uranium sitting in rock dumps, uh, uh, in waste dumps, uh, never mind uh, the in-the-green-situ in resources in South Africa. So, I think the uranium mining is going to come back and turn around here, and there's going to be significant investment in it as well as the rest of Africa. So, I, th- I think in the period 2020, from now to 2032, the next 10 years, you're going to see you know, these incredible things happening. And also, from a political perspective in Africa, you're already seeing the African Union in Addis Ababa. You know, they've got an increasing importance in the economic development and financial governance on the continent. Um, They're promoting a greater Eastern focus, interestingly, away from the West, which is also impacting on, on Western investment. And But they are also promoting and driving governments to implement fast-track mineral resources, management for investment, uh, and a technology focus, and a focus on, on precious metals from the monetary perspective and base and energy minerals for, for the reasons that we've discussed. So, um, yeah, uh, ultimately, Africa has a, a group of 57 countries that are uh, often sitting... On the fence economically because they're financially torn between the east and west right now with all the global politics that's going on so we're in, we're in a very interesting period this next decade it's going to be highly interesting.
0: Yes yeah, certainly um, given the sort of clear changes in project funding approval uh, requirements um, what's your view on financial governance?
1: Yeah <laughs> it's, that's the sort of elephant in the room at the moment for many of the Of the mining companies. Um, I mean, look, there is a global reset in financial governance at the moment. That's clear. Um, And there's certainly a a, a lot of manipulation uh, within the financial markets and what's going on. And it clearly is real. And if you don't believe it's happening, then I believe you're delusional. I mean, I don't class myself as an expert on on it by any stretch of the imagination, but but I'm certainly well-read and well up-to-date in listening to the people that are experts on the subject. Um, and, and there's a big uh, movement on at the moment between banks and governments, you know, working together to to uh, manipulate markets, to massage markets in, in, a, in a, a way that they can drive a narrative to push investment in a certain way. Um, and certainly the COVID, the pandemic, created the perfect cover for that. Um, and for much of what's likely to follow in the next five to 10 years in financial governance, which will involve a reset of the monetary system globally, I think we're going to see that. And, and you know, this the, we're already seeing a lot of the, these issues in the move to everything being digital. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that within five years that we'll no longer have a wallet full of cash. We won't be able to use cash. There's already certain parts of the world, like Scandinavia, that cash is not acceptable. It's a debit card or or, or a credit card. Everything's electronic, so it can be tracked and is trackable uh, by the powers that be. So so that's going to impact uh, everyone. uh, And and not least, it's not only going to affect individuals, but it's going to affect massively investment funds who are going to have to stick to a certain uh, uh, degree or, or, or statute of rules around governance. There'll be one on environmental aspects. There'll be one on social aspects. There'll be one on on, on uh, other uh, security aspects, for instance, Who are they doing business with yeah, in a country? So it'll be very jurisdictional-focused and then regionally-focused. Uh, there's going to be more and more, I think, uh, uh, KYC issues coming across the board on every transaction, and it's going to add a huge amount of cost for project developers um, in order to bring these elements into production. I mean, years ago, Rob, when I started in this industry in the mid-'70s, I mean, Anglo-American gold and uranium division, they would drill one 4,000-meter hole, find some gold reefs, and next thing, you know, they'd approve Couple hundred million capital, and they build a mine. I mean, today you can't, and they build a mine, and mine will be up and running within five years. You can't do that today. I mean, just the 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 red tape around permitting today to to explore, never mind to to build and execute a new mine, is incredible. Uh, all those environmental hoops, the 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 stakeholder management issues, the consulting issues. Um, and then to prove that to your funders, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, the, the, the time frame now from literally from discovery to production has expanded so much that to believe that we're going to be produce all these metals and minerals that we need within the next five to 10 years to meet these uh, uh, predictions for dealing with climate change and solar and wind and electric vehicles and, and uh, it's just not going to happen. Because to permit a new mine today of any significance uh, will typically take you 16 to 20 years to bring it into power, into assuming everything goes to plan. So yeah. how are we going to yeah. uh, uh, deal with things in the next 10 years? So, so yeah, this, these governance issues are, are going to impact. And as I said, um, what I believe will happen, though, is that a larger percentage of the amount of capital that is available, and there's a lot of capital out there will start to flow more into natural resources and mining development because of the prevalent narrative, because of the reset of financial governance. I mean, look, if, if, up to 1980, basically the stock market equaled the economy in the world, everywhere. But today it doesn't. I mean, you've now got, you know, global Federal Reserve and central bank managed credit cycles that are controlling the economy. You know, th- th- this, th- there's roughly, what, 400 trillion of capital in the world 150 trillion in bonds, which are really almost worthless because of negative real interest rates. You've got about 120 trillion in cash, which is all almost worthless as fiat money because it's devalued over 95% in the last 50 years. And in any event, within the next five years, that cash is all going to be put in a pile and burnt because they're going to tax it by 30% and give you a digital unit back. Um, so what does that leave? That leaves about 130 trillion in, in equities. And if you really split that 130 trillion between natural resources and mining and everything else, as I said earlier, mining's about 10 percent, and everything else is 90 percent. And that everything else is currently in a massive, what money- printed bubble, and, and it's got to crash. And, and all that money's going to f- flow into what I call stuff, the safe haven of stuff, which is gold, silver, platinum, copper. Iron ore, the so things that, that that are needed uh, to generate energy to drive the economy and to bring financial security. So, th- there's a huge reset coming, uh, uh, in my view, and the mining and mineral and energy sector. The values are going to go ballistic. It's going to go off the charts. I don't think we can understand where it's going to go. It's yes, unprecedented.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there as well. Um, if we talk, if we talk about critical metals. and and materials, how do you see the supply demand scenario over the next
1: decade or so? Um, Well, if we we talk precious metals to start with, I mean, the bull market in precious metals we're seeing today has really been decades in the making. I mean, since 1971, when gold was disconnected from fiat currency by Nixon, um, I, I mean, the sentiment and the prevalent narrative is key to what the price is for any given commodity, as we know, but especially for gold and silver, which are a sound money, and then we can now throw platinum into that mix, and and potentially also palladium, because it's also a precious metal, uh, and and is literally quite scarce. And given the the Russian issues right now, that's going to impact massively on on, on palladium supplies. And I think it also has to be noted that that gold supply, you know, increases. At only around one and a half to two percent per annum globally, and about a quarter of of that is actually produced and held in China. So really, it's it's not possible for any rapid response to a greater demand in gold and silver because the cycle is just so long for gold and silver production. As we said earlier, probably today, you know, could be ten to fifteen or even twenty years. So, so on the precious metal side, uh, um, certainly. The, they're wildly undervalued at the moment and because of as I mentioned earlier uh, manipulation and and, the elect- and these etfs that's out there that claim to have all the but then they're not really backed by any physical metal so so that's causing a problem um but the general market demand for gold and silver you know in five years ago was nothing today it's just off the charts and and i'm I'm seeing that you know we we could see uh, an ounce this year, and who who knows where it's going to go after that. Um, If we talk um, base metal specific, I mean, the base metal story clearly is an energy story and and, and, and an industrial manufacturing of stuff story, as I said. I mean, the population explosion we've seen over the last hundred years linked with technology advancement uh, logistical and economic access has really been transformed. And, and the demand cycles and curves really approaching exponential, but yet we don't have the materials to, to deal with it. And then you add on to that this political narrative that's driven the uh, uh, um, anti pollution sentiment, the, 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 the green economy, climate change. And now you've got a situation where ev- almost every base metal commodity will be in serious deficit by next year. Uh, I just reading some some reports here, uh, uh, over the weekend where they're claiming already this year copper's going to go into into a deficit. Um, so you know while we've got the post-COVID-19 recovery and growth in production will definitely be a slow and steady rise over the next five to ten years, demand's going to outstrip supply. Uh, it's going to be off the charts, and this is going manif- to manifest itself clearly in energy generation energy storage, and electric vehicles, because they're just not going to proliferate anywhere near the rates that the politicians are waxing lyrical about. And what does it ultimately mean? It just means extremely high prices for the critical metals like nickel, copper, uh, uh, and cobalt. I mean, if you look at, let's look at copper specific for a minute. I mean, the current markets, what, 24 million tons a year, roughly 10 times the nickel market I mean, these electric vehicles, I mean, passenger EVs are using about 80 kilograms more than an internal combustion engine. And if it's it's a, a bus or a truck, they use like 800 kilograms, you know. So EV production and adoption is going to require at least 3 million tons of new copper capacity to emerge by 2024, 2025, and 4 million tons by 2030 or earlier. I mean that's what seventeen and a half percent of supply on 2017, 2018 terms. I mean these these are these are telephone numbers. I mean that means you want you need four uh, uh, Escondida mines to come on stream in the in the next eight years. It's not going to happen, as we've no, said earlier with the, with the time frame. It's just not going to happen. So so where's it going to come from? I mean Chile has got a resource and water problem. We've got Peru's got a budding civil war. We've got a lot of political problems emerging in Chile and Peru, the two largest producers in the world. Um, The DRC is still risky. Some would say peaking. And then you've got the logistics issue in Zambia. Well, I mean, Zambia has become a basket case and it's so slow to move. So, I mean, if you look at Glencore's report that was published recently, it was done by CRU. I mean, they were saying that the the, the massive deficits are coming because the industry is so massively underinvested in the last decade. And really, from a copper perspective, the industry now, right now, is looking to have a price of around twelve thousand to fourteen thousand dollars a ton price to incentivize any further new investment uh, uh, in mines. And then, of course, you've got the this you know fifteen to twenty year window to build them. So it it's really is a very difficult situation. And what the current price today? What copper is around ten thousand today? Uh, and if you look at the capital intensity for copper, this is another very, very, very important point. The CapEx intensity for copper in uh, the last numbers that I looked at was probably in 2019 terms, was, was somewhere in the region of around 15 to $20,000 per tonne metal. So mm-hmm. if we need 4 million tonnes, that that would have been $60 billion in incremental capital over and above the stained business capital for existing mines. So if you then escalate that, 2020, 2021, plus the current inflation rates, you know, you're know you probably looking at a CapEx intensity today of somewhere in the region of around 25 dollars to $30,000 per tonne metal. And that explains why the current projects being built, they're blowing out on their costs. Their CapEx has blown out. The, the projected opex is blown out, and of course that reduces return on investment for the investors. So, 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 so th- this is going. To be, inflation is going to be a massive issue, and nickel, which is the other big one, you know, is is is, is similar. Uh, you know, you've got a 2.4 million ton market, but only 45 percent of the market is class one or sulfide nickel, which we can use for electric vehicles and and battery for utility scale and all those types of things. The technology and the, and the, and the jury are still out on whether they can use laterite and oxide nickel for that. The Chinese keep claiming they can do it, but the ESG impacts the the, uh, the carbon footprint of that and the cost of that uh, has yet to be proven. So, The EV revolution alone is going to need 3 million tons of, of nickel. So That's three times the current production of class one nickel just to meet the EVs by 2030. It ain't going to happen. I'm very sorry it's not. And then you've got the EV chemistry that's changing, the battery chemistry, which is becoming more nickel-focused uh, uh, with the 811 on a, uh, uh, on a chemical split basis to give increased charge density. And then if you look at capex intensity for nickel mines, it's much higher than copper. In 2019, it was around 40 dollars to $60,000 a tonne metal. Uh, so even at the cheaper end of the scale, that would mean 120 billion in incremental capex was needed to get that three, three million tons of nickel. With inflation and bring that forward to today, you can double that number. You're probably looking at, you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars in incremental capex being needed to bring that that metal on stream. So so these numbers, I don't think. Well, I know for a fact that the politicians and the ones that are driving the narrative. They simply haven't do the math. And anybody who wants to look at the market today needs to simply take a step back and do the math. And you'll see the math just doesn't work. It's as simple as that.
0: Yes, certainly. Um, And also regarding bulk infrastructure commodities and energy fuels, any trends you see over the
1: same period? Um, Yeah. um, Well, iron ore obviously is a a commodity where the future is very much tied to massive potential infrastructure investment that will be made either because it's needed or as as part of the COVID-19 fiscal stimulus globally. I mean, you've got the US, of course, who's saying they're going to put trillions into infrastructure. Um, A lot of European infrastructure is very old now and needs to be replaced. I mean, it's not new. I mean, like China, that in t- most of Chinese infrastructure that's existing today has been built in the last 20 years. Most of the infrastructure in Western Europe and the US is already 100 years old or more. So, you know, th- th- there's a massive investment there and that's going to need a lot of iron ore. But, you know, the steel mills, uh, you know, all ran on minimum production during the COVID period and were simply shut for long-term maintenance, many of them. So, and the building of these massive, Uh, cities in China is over. The global real estate market is pretty much set for a reset. So, yeah, we have to see what happens with that. I mean, you've got the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, and as I said, the American investment. (coughs) Uh, I know it's doing very well, of course. Um, And and, uh, I don't see lower prices in the future. I just see it continuing to be at quite a high level. Aluminium that's something of a dark horse because aluminium of course is because of uh, again electric vehicles and and battery systems. they use a lot of aluminium because you need to to, to reduce weight uh, in order to make them transportable in order to bring fuel efficiency to EVs or, or, or energy efficiency, let me put it that way. There are certainly sufficient resources and reserves globally, but most of it as in let's say dicey jurisdictions with logistical routes that are long and they're prone to interruptions from conflicts, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention the rising cost of energy, because aluminium is the highest energy uh, consumer for production at smelters. So its future use and consumption uh, is certainly increasing in search of reduced weight and increased strength, particularly, as I said, in EVs. But yeah, and and, and prices, well, I mean, certainly I think that they're going to be in the $3,500 a tonne plus range uh, for a a long period to come and and could go much, much higher. So we have to see uh, what happens there. Um, And then if we look at energy fuels, of course, the two main ones, one is thermal coal, you know, this much maligned commodity. And it's got, as I said, much longer legs than anyone cares to admit. Uh, I mean, its use and consumption in the developing world due to its broadly positive economic impact in employment in particular, and it's still the cheapest form of energy on a net net basis by a, a considerable margin. Um, and with the latest clean coal technologies which everybody has been discounting. But if you take the latest clean coal technologies, and there are a number of power plants that have been built with these in the US, uh, in Australia Australia, if you take them, and you do a megawatt to megawatt comparative basis with full carbon accounting, they have a much lower carbon footprint than any form of energy other than nuclear power, including solar and wind. But, of course, the political narrative and everything, nobody wants to hear that, but it is a fact. Uh, and I believe those facts will ultimately come to the fore as sense prevails. Uh, so, Carl's going to be with us, I believe, for the uh, long beyond my, my, my lifetime and probably yours, Rob, and many others. Uh, at least for the next 50, 60, 70 years, I would guess. And as I said, the current price levels are north of $300 a ton, uh, and everybody's fighting for supply because they need to produce energy. The other big one in energy fuels, of course, is uranium. Uh, it is interesting, as I mentioned earlier, that until eighty-four, South Africa was the largest producer in the world as a byproduct of its deep mines. <clears throat> um, I believe that's going to come back. Uh, everybody was waiting for the uh, reactor restarts in in Japan after Fukushima. Uh, that was seen as the main catalyst for uh, uh, driving the uranium price, as well as the long-term contracts for the major nuclear utilities worldwide were all ending uh, between uh, 2021 and 2023. So there's quite a lot of negotiations going on at the moment, and that's what's driven the price effectively well I, I actually called the bottom for uranium in October 2016 when it was sixteen dollars I said there's no ways it can go any lower and I was right and and what's it today it's 5750 I think that um, and Not the yet. and the incentive price for new ra- uranium production uh, uh, most of the analysts the real experts on this subject are saying it's around 65 to seventy dollars uh, a pound so uh, uranium's going up we are going to see, I think, new, some new mines built over the next 10, 15 years. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 going to be quite interesting as uranium. A lot of money to be made if you, you know, if you invested at the right time in uranium. Yes, certainly.
0: Um, and lastly, um, clearly, there's a, a lot to monitor and absorb today. Um, so how how do you see the focus of a mining business leader today? To ensure alignment with the, the future, uh, which obviously you've discussed today.
1: Um. Well, I I, I think a number of things that are going to be key. Um, I think that leaders today are going to have to focus their minds yeah. on being strategic, yeah. always, and they're going to have to review their assumptions in their business, you know, much more often than the past i mean uh, if i take go way back to uh, the 70s and 80s you know we used to do uh, uh, planning for mines and so on and we regularly we would talk about a you know a five year plan and a 10 year plan like it was going to be so easy we never thought but today i mean uh, it really is that the the with all the global issues and trends you have to understand what's hot what's not uh, look at the impact and consequences. Look at cycle longevity for the whatever commodity you're 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 mining or, or developing. You're going to have to look at that. Um, you're really going to have to focus on positioning for demand capture. And we've got this new demand cycle coming now, and obviously you want to capture sustainable demand for your project or your business as a whole, uh, and and really focus on on sustainable investment and returns. I mean, with this inflationary environment we've got and the uh, um, uncertain financial and funding future, let me put it that way, uh, these all issues around ESG and setting up your business to have the flexibility to deal with the emerging ESG narrative, and I say emerging because it is. It's still changing. There's still a lot of jockeying there, and and, and I don't think the stake's been put in the ground there. I think there's still uh, some changes going to come, but you need to be watching that closely. Um, and, of course, that also impacts the reputation of your business because very much today, from an investment perspective, is really about the reputation. And, and You have to not only say what you're going to do, but you have to do what you're going to say and demonstrate it. So that's really important. And then I think it's going to be important to design unconventional or contrarian Moves in your business, you know. Don't look for innovation. Uh, uh, look to utilize uh, uh, technology. Uh, uh, don't wait to be second or third or fourth. You know, if you have an opportunity to be first, you know, uh, uh, you do your assessment and, and take the risk. Because I think those that are unconventional and make the contrarian moves are going to uh, uh, generate a much better and more sustainable business. And and on the planning horizon, I mean. As I say, in the days gone by, it was a five to 10-year horizon that pulled back to a three to five-year horizon. Today, planning horizons are literally a one to three-year horizon rolling. It's rolling all the time. It never really stops the process because there's such a lot of change going on. And then lastly, I would say leaders need to be have their radar on and looking at what's the next big thing. You know, you need to look from the outside in and from the inside out. You know, where are you really positioned relative to the, the, you know, the sectors you're focusing on and the return that you're trying to generate for your for your shareholders and stakeholders alike? Yeah. So Alan, challenging, really, to say the least.
0: Yeah, it yeah, can. Yeah, it certainly is. And Alan, I really appreciate your time, uh, taking your time to uh, to give us an overview of of obviously the, the topic around key elements of Energy, environmental focus on the obviously economic future. You gave a lot of detail there around obviously all the different commodities and all the different challenges that um, the world and governments are facing. Um, It certainly seems to be a a minefield out there. Um, And obviously, a lot of work, a lot of work in the future um, to to sort of iron, iron some of these things out. But it's clearly a challenge for the industry. Um and I suppose everyone needs to get more focused and um and work towards what they need to do. And and obviously uh we need a lot more minerals and metals in the world. Um, but obviously there's a lot of lot of um challenges in, in doing so. So I really appreciate you uh, um giving us an overview of uh, your thoughts. If our audience wants to Um, understand a little bit more about your work or might have some some questions they may want to ask you how can they go
1: about doing that
0: and are you on any social media platforms
1: absolutely I mean uh, uh, they can contact me uh, uh, on LinkedIn by all means and if you have any direct approaches Rob I would be more than happy for you to pass on my my email (laughs) address contacts uh, to them uh, and they can reach reach out to me directly uh, no problem
0: yeah, we can include those in the show notes accompanying this podcast, anyway. So they can have your details there. Yep. So, Alan, All appreciate me. appreciate your time again. Um, hope you enjoyed this episode, um, guys. This uh, it was it was very detailed. Um, a lot of important information there that um, hopefully you can take away and have more thoughts more thoughts around. But like like Alan said, there is a lot of challenges in the world. Uh, in our industry Um, and I think it's challenges that we can overcome Uh, maybe not necessarily in the time frames that everyone and governments think that we can but a lot of things to um, take away from this uh, episode and um, appreciate everyone for listening appreciate if you can pass this episode on to others in the industry share this episode uh, tell your friends family other and other colleagues around the world, um, and appreciate if you could pass that this episode on, so they can uh, so they can understand what's happening in the future of our industry. So until next time, happy mining! Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes, and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining! Helping each other to improve the mining industry.